Hello, everyone. Welcome to the X-Cures podcast, Target Cancer. This podcast is about how healthcare technology is revolutionizing the world of oncology, both for physicians and for cancer patients themselves. So I'm joined this morning by Dr. Gandhi. Dr. Gandhi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Michael. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful. So maybe just to get started, you could introduce yourself to our audience, maybe tell them a little bit about your background and what your interests are uh, and the work that you do. Absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon, everyone, based on where you are. Uh, I am a practicing oncologist, uh, started my career almost two decades ago as a basic researcher doing experiments on mice that led eventually to a product we use in colon cancer nowadays. Uh, moved on to doing clinical research, running everything from early stage, we call them phase one trials, all the way down to registration trials that lead to actual approvals of the drugs. And then as I was going through my clinical career, I recognized there was a need to integrate novel technologies early on, all the way from making the right diagnosis of cancer patients, but then also helping them to the journey of their cancer journey. And this is helpful for not just the patients, but also their families. So the last several years, uh, I have been working with a lot of different types of technologies uh, in the machine learning space, in AI space, uh, all the way from novel cancer drug discoveries, all the way down to collecting useful data that comes out of the patient experiences and using that eventually to develop better drugs and improve the patient journey. So it's my pleasure uh, to be here and look forward to this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Gandhi. So thinking about technology, um, you know, some technology we hear about and we talk about is pretty early stage, right? You know, it's being developed, it's in a laboratory someplace, or maybe it's uh, uh, software that's being written. But some technology is already making its way directly into the clinic, into the practice um, of uh, medicine. So if you had to kind of talk about what you see is changing right now in everyday practice where technology is working its way in, wh where are the shifts? Like what is really changing what happens between you and the patients uh, that you're seeing? That's a great question, Micah. And I, I have to say there's a lot of hype around some of the technologies, which I think are half-baked. It will take some time to mature, but there are some that we are actually using right now. We may not even know the machine that drives the technology behind the doors, but it's working. The, the best and the most useful example would be how we currently select treatment regimens. So as you know, cancer is a very complex biology. No two cancer patients are ever the same uh, in terms of how the cancer develops and how they respond to treatments. Now we have access to large repositories, database of different treatment regimens. These are published by a, a international now, an organization called NCCN. However, to utilize these treatments for the right patient, you need to be able to understand the specific patient characteristics. And this is something that we have already begun doing. Uh, we launched this a couple of years ago. Uh, it has been, I would say, significantly successful for more than 80% of our patients. Based on the particular patient characteristic, we can find the right regimen or at least a few regimens to choose from, and then we can have a conversation with the patient. So that's one area. The second area where technology I think has helped immensely, and this is not just cancer, this could be expanded to other diseases, is patient communication. So back in the days, I remember, uh, you know, if a patient who had uh, been on chemotherapy and had side effects had to wait until the clinic opened, had to make a phone call and wait for a doctor to respond, that was pretty primitive. Nowadays, though, we have this online virtual communication tools that are patient portals, uh, there are 
applications that connect the patients directly with us in the clinics, we are just a prompt away. And then we use technology to triage those phone calls and based on the urgency, either a physician like myself would respond directly to the patient or the nurses would. So that's the second category, I call it patient communication. And the third, which is something is almost invisible uh, because we don't see it in real life, but we call that RCM, revenue cycle management. A lot of these processes have already been automatized. And an example would be, and, and I have had that example myself, my grandmother who had renal cancer, at least we think she had kidney cancer. She never got the proper diagnosis in my opinion. The bills can really, really, really pile up very soon before you realized how you take care of those bills. That process is pretty chaotic. And I think technology is fixing some of that by making it seamless. So these three areas I feel are already here in front of us. Uh, it needs more revision, I feel, but, uh, but at least it's a good promising beginning. Wow, that's really fascinating. You know, I, I think I'm, uh, around technology, I'm, I'm basically the same lines. I always think of kind of therapeutic options. So what is happening that are new drugs, new ways of intervening with our biology? It could be surgery techniques, new radiology techniques, new drugs. So it's kind of therapeutic options development. And then I think of um, just the revolution in biological data. So things that have led us into the world of precision medicine, like genomics, proteomics, um, all of the deep omics technologies, um, and then also some things related to it, like where they take your, uh, and I think I got this right, they take your tumor cells and they grow them up, things like organoid panels, et cetera. So there's a lot of like moving pieces in that space. And then I love what you've said about the last piece. It actually kind of changes my perspective. I hadn't quite thought of the other part, but I've always thought about infrastructure and communication. So how do physicians communicate with patients? How do patients communicate with each other? A lot of things like social media, advocacy, communications platforms, all of this knowledge that's kind of circulating in our community, um, which I think is both a good and a difficult thing, right? How to kind of piece together what's working or not. But I love your insight about revenue cycle management or really billing issues, because I think if, if I remember correctly, cancer is one of the top causes of medical bankruptcy in the United States, just in terms of the enormous costs. And it sounds like um, you're already experiencing an ability for the patients to have more streamlined access. And I think we've all had this experience, right, where you get the bill and it's not the real bill and then you get the real bill and still not the real bill. So you, it goes back and forth. And I, I've talked to people where years later, they're still trying to resolve um, issues around that. So if we kind of stick to those categories, I, I like it in terms of the therapies, right, that are coming um, to market. And there's a lot of companies out there developing new drugs and new therapeutic approaches with, with devices. Are there some in particular that think patients should really be aware of that, that are really the ones that are ready today for active consideration? Great, great question, Micah. And, and I agree. Uh, this is, this is a, almost a bipartite uh, industry. Are you going to see innovation uh, in both those segments? So as far as uh, the first segment, which is the therapeutic development, uh, uh, it's a very interesting space because we are learning more about the cancers every day where we thought we already knew enough. So before I even tell you exactly which particular innovation should be exciting in the next few years, I want to give you a very quick example right. about the natural history on how the understanding has evolved. And there's one particular term, it's a medical term, but it's becoming very important for all of us as consumers of care. It is called tumor heterogeneity. Tumor is cancer, 
heterogeneity is, how diverse and how complex it is. So when I trained as an oncologist, uh, I don't want to remember how long ago uh, that was, uh, you know, we used to train uh, in lung cancer, for example, uh, and other cancers based on where the cancers came from. So it's lung cancer, it's pancreatic cancer, it's skin cancer. As technology advanced, we were able to differentiate based on how the cells looked under the microscope. We call that morphology. You can have adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma. As technology advanced, we realized no two adenocarcinomas are the same. There are certain genetic receptors on top of the cancer cell. We call them proteins that actually initiate the cancer. So we went into the world of pathways. So then we started identifying cancers based on pathways. And then now we are in the space where even within the pathways, we have identified, number one, which pathways are what you call driver mutations, which are the ones that have been solidly linked with cancer, which are called the passenger mutations, which are just bystanders. And now we've been able to identify the genetic signals that lead to these pathways, right? So it all has to come from somewhere. The signal is starting somewhere in the body and driving this mechanism. And finally, we are at a point where we can identify, say there is a, a gene called P53. We call that the gatekeeper gene. If that gets mutated or messed up, it starts all the different processes. And so we are at a point where we can identify that and we have just begun uh, the scientific research, how to modify that. So have, with that background, this is what I would like to say. Our understanding of how cancer begins and develops, I think is quite mature. However, what we can do with that knowledge is still in the infancy stage. We are not all the way as to capturing that knowledge. But there are certain exceptions. There are certain cancers, and now to be very specific uh, for the audience, and I'll give an example of a blood cancer called CML, chronic myelogenous leukemia. This is one of the, the holy grails in cancer where we first were able to identify that one particular pathway, then one particular receptor, and, and we were able to find a particular drug called Gleevec or imatinib that neutralized that pathway. It made a cancer that had a six-month survival of less than 50%. Most of these patients would die or undergo stem cell transplant. Today, it is a curable cancer. I have patients in my practice who live more than 25, 30 years. So that was one of the beginnings as to understanding how this works. As the field has advanced, we have identified more and more of these proteins. Uh, breast cancer is a prime example. We have identified something called HER2. It's a, it's a, it's a protein that sits on about 25% of the breast cancer uh, patient's uh, tumor cells, and we can target that. We now have something called PI3K. Uh, that's also a receptor that we can target with a novel drug. Melanoma is a very good example. Again, it had to have a dismal prognosis if it had spread. Melanoma, we call it uh, the, the cancer of the hidden. You know, it can go anywhere, anywhere, uh, anytime that you can just, you're just completely caught unawares. We can find some particular receptors and target them. But what's most exciting is as we go further, and, and this was a, a wake-up call, I think, for the entire community. The, the last year's Nobel Prize for Medicine went to a scientist called, named Dr. Jennifer Dodna, whose lab had worked on CRISPR. It's a gene editing technology. And, and I have to say it is still in process. It is not mature enough. But where we are heading, Micah, I think, is 
not just identifying which genes are causing the problems, but then the ability to remove them or replace them with benign genes. That experiment has already proven successful in certain genetic disorders. It still has to be done in cancer. I think that will be the next five to 10 years of innovation. That is fascinating. So we're identifying these proteins. We're able to intervene very specifically when we can identify them. Um, but it sounds like early, like we have some cases of success. And then what I'm hearing is there's still some, well, some way to go, right? In identifying all of these different targets and being able to work against them. But then CRISPR, which I was also following, and, and I thought this when I first heard about it, this actually would let us rewrite and maybe just stop the cancer or avoid the cancer, if I even think about it, all the ways, depending on how early we kind of understood it. So that's very exciting for the future. A absolutely. And Micah, what you are just talking about, I think that will need to be the future. So everything I just talked about, everything that we see in the news and in articles is about treatment of cancer. Mm -hmm. Very rarely we talk about prevention, right? You think about what was the number one killer uh, of humans uh, a couple centuries ago. It was infections. It was on cancer. Mm -hmm. Then came heart disease, cardiac disease, right? Uh, then multiple medical problems like diabetes, hypertension, kidney disease. All or most of this, you can screen for these conditions. And if you have certain high-risk features, you can almost prevent them from happening. We never talk about that in cancer. Why? Because we are still trying to get a handle on how to fix it first before we can get into prevention mode. So again, to be very specific as an example, there's a company called Grail, uh, and they have a test called Gallery, which I used for the first time, by the way, uh, on a couple of my patients last week. Oh, uh, and uh, so they did that. Absolutely. I've been I've been watching that and thinking hmm, maybe this is something I need to think about. I, you know, family history and all the rest of it. There's so there is a, a strict screening protocol. And just like you said, if you are high risk based on your family tree, uh, it's very simple. You can you can track uh, back about three to four generations if you have the information and plot them and you create a tree sort of. Uh, and then you look at certain of your own features. And if you're high risk for a particular cancer, then you qualify for that test. Now, caveat, it is not still you know, covered by the insurance plan. So it's still the beginning of this process. But just imagine that you a patient comes to my clinic, high risk for patients that had colon cancer, uh, mom had you know, sarcoma, which is a muscle tumor, high risk uh, for a, a particular genetic uh, mutation called P53 that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. uh, do the screening test. And this patient is barely 30 years old. And instead of the regular screening guideline of a colonoscopy at 45 or 50, I have him screened right now. We find a condition called tubular adenoma, which we know is a precancerous nodule the gastroenterologist takes it out, the precancerous lesion is gone from the body, and then we follow the patient with the colonoscopy every five to 10 years. So this is a way to be, and maybe in the future, really hyper-vigilant, right? For the exactly. people who need it, it's kind of for the right people, if I understand. For the right people. So this will, this will not be applicable to the general population, at least to begin with. Mm -hmm. So it will be a time, it will be a, it will be a while until this becomes like A1C, which is a test you check for diabetes. And every time you go to your primary care doctor for a yearly checkup, you definitely get A1C. 
Uh, I don't think it will get there this soon uh, because we still need to understand what do you do with this knowledge. Uh, if the test is positive, for example, uh, you have to understand what to do with that. Also keep in mind, many of these tests can have false positives and that could create unnecessary anxiety with the patient and the family. So there are still a lot of things that have to be worked out, but I feel pretty, pretty optimistic that this is a good first step forward. Very interesting. So you, we just talked about uh, genetic and uh, protein-related um, structures. One of the things I hear a lot about, and, and frankly, we see the, the ads on TV all the time, are these uh, immuno-oncology therapies. So um, part of this, um, I think, is very structural. Like we're in the biology of the cancer, trying to ad address it, trying to find specific targets. But our immune system uh, also plays an important role. So do you see, um, do you see these as kind of competing uh, fields or are they working together? How, how does immuno-oncology and this targeted approach uh, interact with each other? Great question because uh, it's funny and this is a little off tangent here, but uh, because of COVID, you know, I, and I have four young children. So mm -hmm. I, I had a whiteboard and I was explaining to them how the immune system works to attack uh, COVID as an example, but a bunch of viruses, bacteria, parasites, and because I'm an oncologist, of course, I'm biased. So I started drawing another tangent, uh, a vertical in parallel. And I was telling my 12-year-old, look, it's the same T cells that have been programmed to kill COVID virus. You can train them now to attack a cancer because eventually the immune system looks at everything that is alien in the body as a bias. It tries to attack it. So immune oncology, I think, uh, has been one of the one of those innovations that uh, could not have come sooner. Uh, and uh, again, very personally, uh, I have worked closely with uh, the father of immune oncology, Dr. Jim Ellison at MD Anderson. And for your audience, there's a documentary out there on him, uh, the struggles that he had convincing the larger medical community on the worthiness of immune oncology 30 years ago. Nobody believed him at that time. And today it has become the, the frontline treatment for a majority of cancers. So back to your point, Micah, there will be a role for both a monotherapy, meaning you're using these treatments purely by activating the immune system. That will, however, be limited to certain cancers where immune system do play a role. So this goes back to the tumor heterogeneity. Not all cancers behave the same. So you can treat them the same way. But there are certain cancers like melanoma, like renal cell cancer, believe it or not, kidney cancer is extremely uh, susceptible to immune suppression. There have been studies back in the 1970s where metastatic, meaning cancer that is spread throughout the body from kidney, you remove the kidney, procedure called nephrectomy, the cancer would go into remission. That means the kidney was producing certain hormones to keep the cancer alive. So there are certain cancers where immune oncology will go long ways just by itself or themselves. But there are many others where it will need to be a combination. Mm -hmm. There are two particular examples. One, you combine immune therapy. By the way, immune oncology for your audience, it is not a small molecule. This is a very complex, big and large molecule like an antibody. It is very hard to manufacture that and very hard to get this antibody sometimes inside the cell or to, to do what it's supposed to do. 
So the next innovation right now is combining it with small molecules. Small molecules are tiny molecules, low uh, kilo Dalton in terms of the weight. It can enter the cell or make a resistant cell more susceptible to immune oncology. And then the, the frontier that has already begun, and there is a conference right now that is going on, it's called ESMO, the European Society of Medical Oncology. And they just published a couple of articles combining two different immune therapies. Because one may not do what you intend to do, or you may lose response. Why not combine two different mechanisms together? So I think there will be a role for both, using it together uh, by itself, but also combining with other types of treatments. It's very exciting. So I think about um, kind of helping our immune system see the cancer, right? Because it's invisible. We think it's our own body and it isn't really, uh, or it is, but it's our body that's not working correctly, right? Our cells are proliferating too fast or growing too quickly and they're not being handled. So kind of waking us up to it. And then you talked about targeting and is that targeting of the cell, I kind of think of it maybe like painting it, putting a marker on it or something so that our body sees it a little bit better. Um, is that because the immuno-oncology drugs don't work as well? Or is that different from the targeted therapies, which were protein related? Because I think there were a couple different pieces there, right? There's the stuff that affects your immune system. There's the drugs that help that process. And then there's also these targeted that, that That's an excellent question, and I'm going to go into a little bit of biology here, but try to make it as simple to understand. So going back to your first point, yes, it's like laser tag or paintball, right? You're, you're, you're throwing something on, you're identifying the bad cells, uh, and then you are almost targeting. So think of it as a marriage between in, inciting your immunity, but then also targeting your treatment only to those cells. So that's one. Second, we now know that there are certain cancers, and we talked about this earlier before our podcast began, pancreatic cancer, GBM. Mm -hmm. There are certain cancers where immune therapy has not worked. Why? Because these cancers have a very complex, something called tumor microenvironment. What that means is the cancer cells are surrounded by a liquid solid type of a medium, which is called the microenvironment, which can almost scar off. So think of it is, you know, you're trying to attack an enemy and you have a bunch of soldiers down there, but they are within fortified walls. There's no way to break through those walls. So no matter how good your immune therapy is, if it can get to it, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. So that's the second part of innovation going on. Can you first break through that wall, destroy that and provide a safe passage for your immune oncology drugs, we call them checkpoint inhibitors, by the way, to, to enter through that passage. And that's what's going on right now in some of the most difficult to treat cancers. And most of those difficult to treat cancers, interestingly, sit around the pancreatobiliary area, which is the pancreas, the biliary tract, gallbladder, uh, we call that cholangiocarcinoma, that's one of the uh, cancers which is very, very hard to treat. GBM similar? Uh, however, there's another added hurdle as far as uh, the GBM process goes. It is a natural barrier that was created uh, called the blood brain barrier right. that does not let all the chemicals pass through. And immune therapy, like I mentioned earlier, these are big molecules, very hard to go through that barrier. So there's a second part of innovation. How can you make it more permeable so the drugs can enter through that barrier? 
So it's, it's just fascinating. There's so much kind of nuanced knowledge about the not only the chemistry that's going on in our bodies, but the physical structures, right? And the way the anatomy, essentially anatomy of the cancer is in its own way kind of organized. That kind of leads to the second part of this innovation, which is if we're discovering all of these features and components, is it technology that we're using now? Is it, you know, I think people hear about genomics and genetic sequencing, Ho hopefully patients do in the precision medicine for picking the targets. How is that part of the field moving? Are we having, you know, better insights in terms of actually being able to understand what's happening? First of all, I guess what's causing the cancer so that we can attack the kind of root cause. And then secondly, are we now able to understand whether things are working better or not? Are we getting more kind of real-time knowledge? I always think of people, they go and they have chemo and then last for some period of time. And then the question, did it work or not, right? What, what happening? Are we getting better at kind of real-time understanding of what's going on? Absolutely. And I think there's innovation going on in all three of those, I like I would say. So first is diagnosis. The second is treatment. And the third, which we still haven't talked about, is monitoring. So yes, you can have all these great treatment options out there, but how do you know somebody is responding? And if they're responding, it's not killing the patient with the side effects that used to be a problem early on. You know, the treatment could be more toxic than the cancer itself. Is it worth it then? So how do you monitor and how do you decide on how long to treat these patients? That's another big problem, a challenge that we are faced in the community. So the answer is yes on all of that. So let me, again, I'd like to give real life examples. Yeah, so, please. you know, um, I would take care of a non-small cell lung cancer patient, which, by the way, is one of the most common cancers universally. Uh, um, seven years ago, uh, I would check the cancer for maybe two different markers, and I would choose a particular chemotherapy regimen. It is called a platinum-based therapy based on that information, and the patient would get started. I would treat the patient for about four months do a scan maybe after three months or after four months. And then based on the response, I would say, okay, maybe the cancer looks better. We can stop here or we can continue the chemo for maybe a couple more rounds and then we wait and watch. This was the standard not long ago, seven years ago. Today, I have a non-small cell lung cancer patient. I order a panel of genetic testing on that little tiny little specimen. This is a combination of DNA, RNA, and protein tests. So to your point earlier, this is multi-omics. So you're not just looking at genomics, but you're also looking at proteomics. You're blending all of that knowledge together. It's a panel of at least 30 to 40 different genes. You take that information, you choose the right option for the patient based on the available knowledge. And then once the patient has started the treatment, you now have the ability to check for certain biomarkers. Hmm. So these are, think of this as, um, uh, as byproducts. These are materials which are byproducts of cancer that you can watch prospectively. And you can say if the cancer has responded appropriately to a particular treatment or not. Um, there's a lot of innovation going on in there. You can now go all the way to checking for circulating tumor cells, CTCs, mm -hmm. or you can check for fragments of cancer DNA, uh, and you can separate that out from your own human DNA so you can contrast. And now there is a, a technology called MRD, minimal residual disease. This is where you can quantify the number of cancer cells after a certain level of treatment. And if the ratio hits a certain level, 
you can actually stop the treatment prematurely. Hmm. So we are now entering a space where we are moving from over treatment to sometimes I would go under treatment, but I think it's more appropriate treatment, meaning you do not need to treat a particular patient beyond what he or she needs. So we can really dial it up or down now, or at least we're starting to get the information. You mentioned um, these uh, CT or circulating tumor uh, DNA. That's the same as the gallery test, right? That you mentioned to me earlier when I'd looked it at is that. Very, it is very similar. It is very similar. Now, uh, there are different companies out there. They are doing different types of tests. So there's something called PanCan, which is specific for pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are other more garden variety window umbrella tests like gallery. The biggest uh, uh, controversy, because you know, you, you, if you think about it, Grail has been in existence for a very long time. Uh, supported by Google, some of the largest companies in the world. Why did it take this long to get the test out there is for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you find a fragment of the DNA, how do you know what is the significant amount that you should be worried about? And this is where the cancer complexity comes into play, Mike. And I don't want to scare you, myself, or the audience. But any at any given time, there is all of us have an element of cancer in our body. Cancer is not a switch on off. Hmm. It is a constant process, a biological process. It is a tug of war between our own immune system, our own inhibitory mechanisms and the bad players, the carcinogenic players. There's a fight going on constantly in a variety of tissues and organs in our body. So. So it's, it's, it's almost scary to, to think yeah. that I'm sitting here talking to you, I might have something in my pancreas. And at some point that balance might be tipped off. But that exactly is what played into the complexity getting these tests out there. They could not define at what level you say it is significant enough that you should worry about it. So, so now we are in the world that we have moved from qualitative testing, qualitative meaning you check for yes or no, to quantitative testing, which means if it is yes, how much of it is significant? Hmm. This is, I, I think this is gonna be really, really exciting. So I, I often think about um, uh, patients, especially like the newly diagnosed patient and all of this complexity, and you and I both have worked around these technologies now for some time, and we understand some of the nuances about them, and they're still really complicated, right? And you need to understand them and go further. So um, I often think there's very, very smart people out there who have smart in some other field, they're rocket scientists or um, engineers or lawyers or um, uh, just work in some other field. And of course they haven't spent their time studying cancer or oncology. And then suddenly one day they have a checkup or they notice some symptom and they go in for a, for a scan or, or to see their doctor and they find out they have cancer. And this is like, oh my goodness, I have to go and learn this entire subject, right? And so how, how should patients really think about preparing to understand all of this complexity and technology? Like what are, what are the things that they can do? I mean, they're gonna talk with their oncologist and work with their treating oncologist and work, work through that. So they'll have some support, but what can they do on their own to kind of be ready for this experience? What's, what's a good place to start? And what's a reasonable level of understanding that really helps versus making yourself crazy, right? Kind right. of taking it way too far. Absolutely. And that I would say, if you ask me what has uh, what is still one of the major unmet needs in the industry today, it is appropriate patient educational material. 
Again, a lot of folks have tried to do that. I don't think, at least this is my personal opinion, nobody has been able to solve for that completely. But until that happens, there's a couple of different ways. So one is having an open communication conversation with your oncologist and think of this as a journey. There is no way that somebody, a patient or the family is gonna be able to understand everything about the cancer at the mm -hmm. first appointment. It is just not going to happen. So I would take that as a positive and take that as a learning opportunity, but build upon that. So multiple visitations and slowly trying to understand what is there to understand. So that's one. Second is what are you using as a resource? And I always caution my patients just doing a random Google search because you just never know what information is going to pull up, like you just said, and you don't wanna go create that unnecessary anxiety on top of the real anxiety that exists, but really going to sources that have been vetted for a very, very long time. These are some of the large cancer institutions, for example, the, the Mayo Clinic, MD Anderson, NCCN, uh, which is the organization I quoted earlier, now has a patient education portal. Any patient survivor, family member can sign up, it's free. These are materials which are written by, curated by the same oncologists that actually write the guidelines for treatments. So this is, there's some kind of credibility that uh, comes out of that. What we have started doing, Micah, is even before a patient starts treatment, because the, the time with oncologists sometimes is limited. Let's be truthful. I mean, this is a busy world. The patients may not have enough time with the doctors. So we have a nurse practitioner in our office that spends one and a half hour, which is 90 minutes of dedicated time. This is not your typical medical jargon. We have a room with a TV screen, the bunch of papers piled up. Uh, these are materials that are handed out to the patients. And then videos are shown about what to expect with that particular cancer, what to expect from a particular treatment, what to look out for, and so on and so forth. There has been a little bit of a problem from the reimbursement perspective that has inhibited a lot of practices from adapting this, but that is changing now thanks to the new CMMS guidelines many of the practices are actually able to support hiring a dedicated uh, professional to do this for the patients. But again, this is a space where a lot can happen. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about uh, patient education really being something that hasn't been gotten right. I, I often um, hear that from patients just of like how confusing the information is. And you, you made a great point, which I think is really hard because I certainly know that it Anything I hear that I don't know something about, regardless of subject, my automatic instinct is to grab my smartphone, grab my tablet, my computer, whatever, and just type it into the Google search bar. And then type five or six different search strings and just start trying to consume this information. And frankly, that works very well in some simple subjects, right? You know, just something I wasn't aware of, you know, uh, trivia almost. But it's very, very difficult when you get to something like medicine uh, and cancer in particular. And it's just difficult because you end up, frankly, finding a lot of this very either um, superficial information, right? It just isn't in-depth enough, um, even from some of the other sources where they just don't tell you all of the details because it's hard to be specific because it's so complicated. So no one knows what to present to you. And so it's too high level. Or you find yourself very deep, very quickly. So you'll find yourself reading a research paper that was published sometime in the last 10 years by some group of scientists at some institution you may or may not have heard of about some molecular pathway 
that sounds a little bit like what you heard someone talk about in a test, but it's like, it's how do you connect those two things? And I think there's enormous opportunity there um, uh, to do that. So um, I actually think, uh, Dr. Gandhi, we have a patient joining us here. Let me see if I can uh, add them uh, to the discussion if you're okay with that. Absolutely. My name is Mika. I'm the uh, CEO of Xcures, and I'm joined here by uh, Dr. Kandi. So welcome to Target Cancer. This is a, a podcast about technology and how it's affecting cancer patients and really trying to understand uh, what's happening in terms of the patient journey. So um, what I'd like to do is maybe have Dr. Gandhi introduce himself, and then maybe you can tell us about you and kind of your journey and uh, uh, a little bit about your story. Yeah. Nice to meet you, Alicia. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a practicing oncologist um, and I've been doing this for a couple of decades uh, and um, um, have worked in basic research, clinical research, and um, um, more lately uh, working to really incorporate some of the newer technologies uh, into patient care, uh, both at the level of uh, diagnosis, but also choosing the right treatment options for the patients. That's really interesting. So Alicia, tell us a little, yeah, please go ahead. Okay. Uh, my name is Alicia Oblander. Uh, Alicia Maslar is my uh, my new name because I just got married a couple years ago. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, my story starts before I was even born. Uh, my mother grew up surrounded by cancer in her family. My grandfather had a 20 year battle with colon cancer and he died the same year as my aunt who had an aggressive form of uterine cancer. This was the 1980s and my genetic condition was not fully understood yet. Uh, fast forward to my life in 2017, I started noticing that I wasn't regular anymore. Uh, I thought it was food related, so I started trying different diets. I would see a gynecologist every year and I asked her, I think I have hemorrhoids. Um, I looked and I, she saw nothing and said everything was fine. In 2018, things got a lot more serious. I was feeling like I had to go to the bathroom every 15 minutes and it was very uncomfortable feeling. Um, and when I did go, it was just blood and tissue. Uh, it was terrifying. And I went to a primary care doctor and she told me to stop eating so much corn and scheduled a uh, appointment with a specialist. The specialist saw me for five minutes and he looked up my butt and told me he couldn't see anything and just said I needed a colonoscopy. I looked at the cost of a colonoscopy. I had insurance, um, but because I was 32 years old, uh, it wasn't covered. It was going to be $3,000 to get a colonoscopy. So I scheduled an appointment with my financial department of the hospital, but it took three months for them to see me. At this point, I couldn't work any longer. Um, so eventually when I did see them, I was qualified and I was able to get that colonoscopy. I was wheeled into the room of the colonoscopy and they said, what is a 32 year old woman doing here? Uh, I watched on the big screen as they went through my bowels, everything looked great and they were leaving. They saw this black tumor. Um, they took a biopsy and they wheeled me back in the post-op and they told me that I had cancer right then and there. Um, 
a couple weeks later, we performed a genetic test and I learned that I had Lynch syndrome. Um, if people don't know about it, it uh, your DNA carries instructions for every chemical process in your body. As your cells grow and divide, they make copies of their DNA and it is not uncommon for these minor mistakes to occur. Normal cells have mechanisms to recognize these mistakes and repair them. But the cells of people who have Lynch syndrome lack the ability to repair these minor mistakes and the accumulation over time of these genetic damage of these cells, uh, it becomes cancerous. One in 279 Americans have Lynch syndrome, but most of them don't even know it yet. So after an MRI test, I learned I had stage three rectal cancer. The tumor was growing through my rectum and I had some lymph noids affected. I received five weeks of radiation and 5-FU, oxyplatin, chemotherapy, and uh, the tumor was, once the tumor was small enough, uh, we were able to go in and remove it along with my entire colon, rectum, I had a full hysterectomy, and I got an ileostomy. Um, I also got a J pouch at that time, but I received so much radiation that the J pouch was damaged. And the last two years I've been trying to get it to work. And then a few weeks ago, I finally got a permanent ostomy. And actually this month marks me two years cancer free. So that's my story. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about genetic screening with this history of cancer. Was that the first time someone had told you about kind of going in for some hereditary screening? Had, had you heard yes. about that before? Yes. And there was times my parents were getting colonoscopies where they told them about their family history, but nobody ever offered a genetic test until it came to me because I went to the Cleveland Clinic where they know a lot about that kind of stuff. They have a whole Lynch department. But yeah, the I was the first one in my family to figure this out. Any advice for patients just kind of as you were going through that process and it sounds like you, in the beginning, you weren't really sure what was going on. You, you knew something was happening and then you went through this process where they kind of figured it out. Any advice for patients who might be out there or people just in general kind of experiencing these kind of um, symptoms and what yeah. I learned through all this was you need to rule out cancer first before you start thinking about IBS or other issues that aren't as serious. I kind of thought cancer was like the last thing we would get to, and that's just not good. But I don't really have a lot of advice because my friends have tried to get genetic testing and they're not covered by their insurance or their doctor just doesn't recommend it. It's like getting the knowledge is so difficult for people, but it could definitely cut down on a lot of unnecessary deaths if we knew more, did more testing. So it sounds like more education and information as well as maybe some, some changes or having people understand when it's worth doing this type of testing or not. Yes, yes, definitely. That's why I'm sharing my story because I just want to create more awareness of this because a lot of people don't even um, they just think that they could just be healthy, exercise. They don't even realize that their genetics are at play here. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that and sharing with us. And we really appreciate you coming on the show, Alicia. It's a really I think, important me. thing. Yeah, thank you so much. Best of luck to you, Alicia.
Thank you. Hi, Stuart. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I can. Well, welcome. So thank you so much for coming on. My name is Mika. I'm the CEO of a company called Xcure. So welcome to the podcast, Target Cancer. Um, I'm joined by Dr. Gandhi uh, here. He's going to introduce himself, uh, and then maybe you can tell us a little bit about you and, and your story and experience. Hi, Stuart. Nice to meet you. Hi. Well, I'm more of a observer because Alicia is my daughter. Huh. So I came on to see how that is. But, uh, you know, speaking of uh, Lynch syndrome, uh, it's my wife who carries that in her. And so, um, you know, it, it's it's a kind of almost like a ticking time bomb. You do, just don't know when something like that will happen. But uh, and then my other daughter also has that. So were you aware? aware? Go ahead. Were you aware of syndrome before this kind of testing? How, how did you as a family kind of end up figuring it out? And then what do you, what do you kind of do with that information now? Well, we, uh, we found out with Alicia, it, once she had the test, we found out that uh, about Lynch syndrome. And, uh, you know, it was, if you start looking it up, you, you find out about how difficult it was for Dr. Lynch to get the medical, the, to accept this and understand it. And hopefully that's been very helpful. But my, my father-in-law, he had colon cancer and he back in uh, probably the uh, 83, and it was, it was a difficult time for him where uh, he would go in and they'd take out a part of his colon and he'd go home and recover and then they'd find it again. And they would have to go in there and take out more of his colon. So it was a it was a horrible ride for him to go through. But yet now the Cleveland Clinic, their protocol is to remove the entire colon and hopefully get a, uh, a J pouch and go on and have somewhat of a normal life. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the, the radiation was a little hard. The location of the tumor was probably dictated how this was going to be the, uh, the outcome for her. So, but she has a great attitude. Yeah, she's wonderful. Um, Dr. Gandhi, so someone who might have a family history, like when should someone be thinking about Lynch syndrome? Just because I've heard this is a, I've been counseled on it, uh, even yeah. personally to have some, but how should people think about it? And then what can people do, right? If you have the test and you find out this is in your family, like what what's the best way to kind of try to manage yeah, so I want to make this comment when Alicia was on. So Stuart, uh, I'm sure you can pass it on uh, to her. But you know, this what she went through, what the rest of your family has gone through. There are several families that have gone through this that actually has had an impact. So you you raised a question uh, or rather made a comment. Hope this was helpful to learn from the experiences. It is as of approximately a year ago. Uh, it is now a standard recommendation to check every one, every young patient that is presenting with a colon mass, colon cancer for Lynch syndrome. Part of the reason it had not become a routine is for a very long time, we didn't quite understand which were the precursor genes because for many cancers, you either have one or two. However, for Lynch, which we call HNPCC, which is the medical terminology for this, it's a family of genes called mismatch repair genes. 
So you have to do a battery of tests, genetic tests to identify this. And then based on which ones are positive and negative, you can provide certain recommendations. So, so, so that's one thing that I would like to comment on. It has now become a, a routine to offer this test, not just for young patients who had cancer, but also patients who have strong family history. Now, why is Lynch important is because it's not just colon cancer. You also have to be concerned about a few other types of cancer. So Mika, back to your point, uh, you know, doing early, uh, having early conversations with the patients and early screening procedures for, for women, it would be mammography, for males also checking their PSAs and certain laboratory workup. It is, it is an umbrella that you have to think about, not just a particular cancer. And it's, it's interesting, Dr. Lynch, uh, until recently, he used to go out and talk about his research, and he still used to publish uh, until until a couple of, a couple of years ago. And he provided some updates on long term longitudinal uh, real world data on these families. And what uh, what what was learned is exactly what Stuart said. Uh, you know, instead of doing piecemeal surgeries at least until we have a cure for this condition. Obviously, we don't have a cure. We cannot cure a genetic condition yet. Uh, but until that happens is early intervention and trying to avoid chemotherapy and radiation therapy before the cancer has begun, that is the way to go. Yes, there are complications, lifelong complications from surgery. However, the complications after the cancer has already developed, especially from radiation, those are lifelong. Mm -hmm. So Stuart, just a question as you and the family went through this, wh where did you guys go for information? You went to the Cleveland Clinic, it sounds like, and uh, and got information from them. Did you find good sources that people should be aware of, um, of additional information? Well, uh, the clinic was, you know, they explained everything very well, uh, but also just doing research on the internet, you know, making sure that you're at a good uh, website that you're learning, you know, maybe the Mayo Clinic. It's been two years since we really started this journey. So uh, I, that, that's what I remember us doing mostly and, you know, finding out about it and, you know, what, how it was going to be. And emotionally, this is a, a, always a difficult thing to deal with. How, how has the family worked work through all of the emotional components of the, the experience? Well, in the beginning, it was, it was really rough. It was really rough. And the more we learned about it, the more it impacted us. Uh, and we just, we, we were her caregivers. We went with her every day to the clinic for her treatments. And, it, you know, that went on for five weeks in the very beginning. So it was, it was numb in the very beginning. It was just our life changed. You know, we never thought we would be the the family that would have something like this happen to it. It was always someone else's family. And now that's all completely changed on us. So we, we try to be as much of an advocate for this to let other people know, like Alicia said, to make other people aware because of this. I mean, I, I, I've seen these people on the fifth floor at the clinic and it's, it's not a pretty sight. It's tough. It's very, it's, it's hard. It's very emotional. Well, thank you, Stuart. I really appreciate you sharing. And thank you both to you and to Alicia for sharing with others. I think that's a big part of what 
um, we're all trying to do is just to share the experience and make sure that people understand what are their options, like what are the things that can be done and, and where can you get support and help. So thank you very much. And I really appreciate you joining us um, as well as Alicia. Okay, thank you. Thank you for sharing. So um, apart from uh, maybe just a couple of comments, the major genetic hereditary disorders. So we've heard about Lynch syndrome. I think we were all made aware of some of the breast cancer. Um, uh, I'm thinking of BRCA1. What, what are the big ones that are the ones that are really kind of prevalent that patients who have a family history should kind of know about? What, what are these kind of major buckets? So what's uh, interesting, uh, Mika, is what uh, we know uh, right now and what we think we will know in the near future. Hmm. So those are the two categories. What we know currently, the two most common cancers are colon and breast. It's a percentage of both of them. But if you were to categorize, if you were to screen somebody with a particular cancer or even think about a genetic mutation, it would be those two. Now, it's much more nuanced than that, as you know. Uh, it depends on what type of breast cancer it is, what age were they diagnosed at, you know, what is their ethnicity, what is their uh, uh, the, the other uh, biological characteristics. It's much more nuanced than that. But the reason I make the differentiation is that now we are realizing there are many of the prostate cancers that are also genetically driven. There are many blood cancers like CLL, which is a very, very common uh, chronic type of a leukemia that occurs in the elderly, that is genetically driven. Now we are realizing when you have a combination of two or three different cancers, the most common being breast and pancreatic, those are genetically driven. So I think uh, our understanding of the genetic nature of these cancers is still just on the verge uh, of, of, of beginning. Even within the, the genetics that we know about, we are beginning to understand more. So for example, uh, and this was really brought to light uh, by one of the famous uh, actors, Angelina Jolie, mm -hmm. uh, who tested herself for a BRCA1 because of the strong family history, underwent uh, prophylactic, meaning preventive mastectomies at that time. Uh, and that actually brought a lot of awareness. That was the tip of the iceberg. Now we know of at least six to seven other genes within the, the BRCA family that can cause this. So even if you're BRCA one or two negative, you could still have a genetic breast cancer condition. So that's what I would like to comment on. This is still uh, in uh, uh, evolution. We are understanding more as we go uh, about this. And honestly, the oncology community is still trying to grasp this. Say you find a mutation, what do you do with that information? Because that information is still not clear. It will not be until you follow these patients longitudinally for some period of time. And there are some studies that are published. So it's, it, it's interesting, uh, as you're thinking about this, I was thinking about the information that I have about my own family, because we talk a lot about family history and you brought it up, um, I think earlier in our conversation, this whole idea of a family tree. It sounds like, and I don't think this was as common for us, certainly culturally uh, in the cultures I come from, to really discuss family history and the detail of kind of some of these things, especially from the older generations, I think. I don't, people just didn't talk about this as much. But it sounds like we should all try to have some understanding, at least in those people who are directly related to blood, blood relatives, kind of what is the medical history? How, how far back do you need to look in that family tree? And are, 
how far back and how wide, what, what sort of information would one want to know to be able to answer, you know, with, with reasonable certainty? Is, is this really a thing? Because I also know cancer could just be one person for one individual reason, maybe exposure, some something happened and not related to family history. So how do you kind of determine where you are in that that spectrum? So you're right on about um, the, the cultural phenomena. And, you know, and uh, I, I grew up in India and uh, same thing. It was very hard to parse anything out. You know, I give an example of uh, uh, my grandmother, unfortunately, who, again, like I had mentioned, we think she had kidney cancer. We never were able to make a diagnosis. You know, she had hematuria, blood in the urine for years and never mentioned it to anyone because she was petrified of going to see a doctor uh, and wanted to keep this as contained, not because of her, but because she didn't want to be an unnecessary burden on the family. And she knew that as soon as a family knew about this, they would jump on it and uh, people were busy in their own lives and she didn't want to bother them. But as a negative consequence of that, we'd have that mis it's almost like a missing piece in the puzzle. We will never know what exact type of cancer she had and if it was a genetic condition or not. So that brings up how far and how wide you want to go. If you ask a geneticist, more the better. Because okay. there are certain genes which are transmitted in an autosomal dominant fashion. That means it for sure gets transmitted from one generation to the other. Others are, however, recessive genes which means that they might be silent and they would only reactivate in a particular generation or in a particular gender. There are some that only get passed on to males. So we call them X-linked genes and Y-linked genes. And there are some where it has to come from both sides of, of the family. So it doesn't get expressed unless there's a defective gene that came from both the biological mother and the father. So in general, more the better. But as a rule of thumb, this is what I do in my practice as a, as a quick screening test before a patient is referred to a geneticist is the, the rule of thumb of three. If you go three generations vertical and three relationships broader, you have captured, in my opinion, more than 70 to 80% of all the high-risk population. And that is also easy to remember. If you ask me, what did my great-great-grandfather have? I have absolutely no clue. I barely right. remember the name. <laughs> um, let's be honest. You ask me about my grandmother, I could give you the history. So anything beyond that becomes harder. You have to go back to the book. You have to ask your, your parents, your grandparents to get that history. And it does become more challenging. And you, you question the credibility of that information because people used to be misdiagnosed all the time back then. Mm -hmm. So really your grandparents and then their, the family members, right? Their brothers and sisters, is that correct? That is correct. And, and if you had siblings mm -hmm. and cousins, you go, because if you look at most of the guidelines, you either require one or two first degree relatives or a combination of two, either you can have two or three second degree relatives or two second degree relatives and first degree relative. And, and when I say degrees, they are degrees of separation. So, for example, my, my mother would be genetically related to me would be considered first degree, right. uh, but a distant cousin would be considered second degree. Second degree. And so uh, just one last question on the subject. Do you, do you also need to think about the type of cancer? P people tell me we have a history of colon cancer, a history of this type of cancer. 
or is it just any cancer at all in in that group? Like, how do you how this do you is, think about that? So this is the current and the future that I was referring to. So current would be mainly colon and breast cancer. But in the not so near future, we'll be asking or doing the same mental exercise, if you will, thinking about uh, the high risk for other types of cancers like prostate, pancreatic, and leukemias. So Dr. Gandhi, thank you so much for coming on uh, Target Cancer. It's been really wonderful having you here. Um, very, very informative discussion. If you had to leave us with kind of some closing thoughts on what patients should know, in particular about technology and um, what they're going through and, and talking with their oncologist and what's coming out in, in cancer therapy today, what, what would those comments be? So thank you for having me. This was a, a very, very uh, you know interesting conversation and also communicating with patients and learning about their real life journey. So as a closure, I don't like to throw a lot of things out, but if there are two particular items or areas that I think we should all think about, number one is keeping a very open mind. And what I mean by that is in healthcare, in oncology in particular, we are learning so much from other industries, from other types of technologies. We are using technologies here that have already been used in other parts of the industries. Mm -hmm. uh, so keeping that as an open mind, asking uh, lots of questions uh, about what can be done and what cannot be done uh, when, when you meet your oncologist. Number two, really, really to spread the word. A lot of this is about education. So you know, we think of oncologists uh, and the healthcare community uh, to be the ones educating the patients on their condition and such. But that number is limited in comparison to the number of patients who unfortunately get cancer or will get cancer in the future. So the way I envision is each of my patients becomes an advocate. Mm -hmm. Each of my survivor of cancer becomes an advocate. Go out there, share your message, Share your learnings, the things that should be done, but more importantly, should not be done. What are the things that you learned you could have done differently if you had to go through this journey again? So sharing that knowledge with the peers, with the family members and friends who are also unfortunately going through cancer. But as a very last closing, I, I want to share this uh, message of hope. We are somewhere in cancer care, in oncology, that I did not predict we would be here this soon. At least when I began my journey training for oncology, I was expecting at least 50 to 60 years to get to the point where we already are today. There are so many cancers which are now curable. I mean, forget cure, uh, patients would suffer and suffer and suffer for a very long period of time. We can actually cure these cancers uh, today. And the rate at which innovation is occurring has just been an exponential trend. And, and, thanks to, uh, and that is thanks to a lot of the computational uh, methodologies that we can use. Again, going back, uh, I like to call this the convergence, the bioconvergence of different technologies that really has hastened uh, how quickly uh, we can achieve this cure. So we are the inflection point in cancer care oncology. So I wanna just, leave us all with a hope of positivity and optimism. That is such a powerful message. Thank you so much, Dr. Gandhi. Thank you for being on the show with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much.
So uh, welcome to Xcure's uh, podcast, uh, Target Cancer. So this is a podcast and information um, for patients and oncologists. I'm really trying to understand people's uh, journey and experience with cancer and their education and technology and how it really impacts them. So maybe um, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience, and we can just talk for a few minutes about things that you learned along the way. Well, my mother actually um, passed away from pancreatic cancer. Um, oh, thank you. And she battled with it for like 18 months, although she was only given six months to live uh, stage three mm -hmm. is when we found out about the diagnosis. And were you her caregiver during that time, Lachey? Um, She was actually, yes, I did assist with, with Karen for her along with my stepdad okay. and family. So how did you find out? Like what, how did the kind of um, you all become aware of the situation. What were the things that were going on? Just trying to help people understand what you might Some of the signs and symptoms that she had initially um, noticed was that she was having back pains. Um, when we went to go in, we went to go, I'm so sorry, it's kind of touchy subject matter for me. But when we went to go and see what, it, what exactly those back pains was coming from, we were told that she had um, arthritis in her back. But then it didn't, it's like she started having rapid weight loss and then the symptoms kept occurring. And then when she finally went back, that's when they was like, we think you may have cancer. And so we had to sit for that 24 hour window to see if that was the actual diagnosis. And that's when she was diagnosed um, stage three pancreatic cancer. But prior to that, she didn't have any um, any known symptoms or anything. Did you know anything about cancer and pancreatic cancer in particular before this? Was that a subject you felt comfortable with? or I didn't know much about it. However, I did have an uncle, um, my mom's brother, who had recently, maybe I want to say like a few years prior, passed away from the same exact cancer. What did you and your stepdad do to try to like? Where where did you go to find information and knowledge? And you know, was were you working with your oncologist? Were you working with? They other were very. The oncologists were very hands on, um, so we definitely worked closely with them. Um, but yet, and still, it's just one of those. It's just one of those cancers that it's not as much research to it. I mean, there's a lot out there, but still trying to find it that solution for it or at least help remedy it a little bit because it's very rapid. Yeah. What, what were the most important resources for you? I would say have to, it was like the nurse, it was the professional. So it was the nurses that were, it was the oncologists. Um, and then kind of finding a group of other cancer patients by going to the Levine hospital here um, in Charlotte, North Carolina, we're able to kind of build a community to where we all had to endure this, scary thing called cancer and just kind of just having it building that supportive community. So I hear a lot about that from patients, right? The advocacy and the groups that they interact with. Was this an in-person group? Did you, were you all able to meet in person? Mm -hmm. um, mostly our meetups would be um, at chemo sessions and radiation and things of that sort, or whenever we would participate in the walk because they do the yearly uh, pancreatic walk. And then you have a lot of oncologists and professionals that get on the stage and they educate us. Um, but yeah. It's 
did you find yourself interacting with like different technology, like medical systems or um, I always think of technology kind of being in three things. There's like the drugs that they're using, right? Which is a type of technology. There's testing technologies where they're testing for this or doing a scan or something like that. And then there's technology that just kind of helps people connect to each other. So like Facebook groups or community um, outreach sort of things. And then there's, kind of the whole billing financial side. So think of it as like um, drugs, testing things, emotional, like how do you get support in the community? And then like all the kind of logistics of cancer and hospital systems, which is its own kind of ball of wax. Um, it really wasn't a lot of communities like that. You just had to just be bold enough to build your own support system. And mm -hmm. that's why a lot of the people that I met, um, because although my uncle passed away, I wasn't there. So I never had to like experience it until my mother went through this. So I just, I'm very talkative as you can see. So I just kind of built relationships and reports with people coming to the hospital. And then we built a community like that. And it wasn't just pancreatic cancer, it was all kinds of cancers. And we just kind of built our own community because we don't really have, there's not really much that you can go to and join mm -hmm. per se. Got it. And are you still active in that same group and community of, of folks? Not as I would like to be. Um, however, I, I still do the waltz um, and things of that sort. But unfortunately, when everyone passed away, we oh. never really kept that community going. Yeah. So um, <laughs> just in terms of um, a message for other people. If if someone finds out that they or a loved one's diagnosed with cancer, like what what would your advice, having gone through the experience, be? What are the important things? Um, <clears throat> the important things that I get from my best friend also passed away from cancer. So my mother and my best friend walking closely with them. Their advice was just continue to treat us like we're normal. Um, it sounds a little cliche and mundane, but that's the advice. Just continue to love on them. They're going to need extra love, extra care, extra reassurance, um, and just being there. But being there and not making them feel as though they're like, um, I hate to use the terminology, but like a project or something, but just treat them like you would normally do in any other, um, on any other day without them being diagnosed with a terminal illness. Can you tell us about the emotional journey? Um. Yeah, I hope I'm not going to cry. Um, yeah, I feel it. So the emotional journey, I'm still actually still actually going on right now. Um, it's really hard seeing your loved ones going through something that you don't really have an explanation for. Um, and then especially them being so vocal because of who I am and being understanding and want to know what they're going through, but don't really think I'm strong enough to like, to take it all on. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot. So it's like you're caring for them, but then you also have to make sure you fill your cup and get some, some counseling or some help because you just don't have the answers. And it sounds like this community, were, were you able to get resources from the hospital and community to help you as well as, as your mom? Uh, no, not really. I mean, as far as like 
my mom's oncologist rock. Like as far as like letting you know, like every single detail, whether it's good or bad. I mean, that was pretty much the only help in it and the relationship and rapport that he built with everyone. It was just phenomenal. So I think that in itself was a lot of help because he kind of helped motivate them a lot. And that was the only help that I was able to receive outside of being able to pick up the phone and call someone else that was actually going through what I was going through. And we can cry and we can talk about this because it's, it's really tough. Yeah, I hear that so often. And I hear this advocacy kind of community part is just being really important. I also think, you know, did you share uh, in the community kind of like tips like this was working? And sometimes it's not about, um, I hear it's not about the actual like medical treatment, but it's like, what are you doing to stay comfortable at home, right? How are you, was that a part of the dialogue? Um, Yes, we changed eating. Like I was, you know, we changed our eating. getting out exercising every day, just trying to find something to do. Mm-hmm. Um, touchy subject. No, I, I, well, thank you. First of all, thank you for coming and sharing. I think it's really important that we're able to share this information. And I realize, um, uh, I know personally, this is very difficult. So thank you. Um, any advice after having gone to where you are today that you would want to leave kind of last question what what would you tell people that kind of one thing that you have to hang on to um honestly i don't know you know um i mean i'm i mean i'm a believer that's just who i am so it's my faith that I had to hold on to and I still have to hang on to to help me, you know, get through it. Okay. And for those that's in enduring it, to have a loved one that may be experiencing an encounter and, you know, the diagnosis of cancer, uh, you just have to be strong. And it's just and have a support system, a healthy one, you know. It's, it's tough. You're incredibly strong, Lachey. Thank you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I realize um, it's a difficult time. And thank you for sharing your experience with everyone. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care. Mm -hmm. You too.